It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Sunday, September 10th, 2023. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. He says he's running and his party will not hold debates. But is it possible President Biden won't run again? And if it is, is it also possible one often mentioned name will run? I think it's about the future, too, because Gavin Newsom, especially being a young guy, you know, everybody keeps talking about, you know, he's going to run and not Joe Biden. My take is that he's going to run after Joe Biden. I'm Ryan Schmelz. The Senate is up for grabs next year, but Republicans are looking to the primaries to try and avoid deja vu. I think recruitment has been the top priority of Republicans, but they have not avoided primaries in many of these instances. And so the question becomes, can their candidates get through? This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Polling's been rough for President Biden. This past week, a CNN poll found his approval rating was at 39 percent. Forty six percent of all respondents said any Republican would be better than him. In hypothetical matchups, he's statistically tied with each Republican candidate. Only Nikki Haley is ahead by six points. Seventy three percent are concerned about the president's age. And his vice president, Kamala Harris, has even lower approval numbers than he does, at least in a new NBC poll. Under any circumstances, would you get in this primary? No, none. I look, I really am proud. I think he's a man of decency and character. I'm really proud of the president. That was California Governor Gavin Newsom in a sit down interview with Fox's Sean Hannity in June. There are other Democrats who are running and governors of other states who could be tapped. But Gavin Newsom's name keeps coming up. Newsom became a famous mayor in 2004 when he ordered the city clerk to give out marriage licenses to gay couples long before it was legal in California, let alone the nation. And just after it was legalized in Massachusetts via a court ruling. I was elected in essence uh, not to advance discrimination, but I was elected to end it. San Francisco is a proud city. We do not tolerate discrimination. He went on to become Governor Jerry Brown's lieutenant governor, backing propositions that changed crime laws in the state before becoming governor himself, during which time he had tension with then-President Trump, but navigated it. During multiple wildfires, Newsom said Trump always responded to the state's emergency needs quickly. Here he was in September of 2020. He may make statements publicly, uh, but the working relationship privately has been a very effective one. Earlier this year, former President Trump said in an interview he got along with Newsom when he was president and that Newsom was nice to him. Over the past year, Newsom has raised his own national profile in part by feuding with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. So with 14 months to go, will we be talking more or less about Newsom ahead of the election? First of all, every party, Democrat or Republican, always have a plan B, even if their candidate isn't older. You know, you always have to have a plan B. Leslie Marshall is a Democratic strategist and Fox News contributor based in Los Angeles. And there's a short list of that plan B. And Gavin Newsom is certainly one of those names on that short list. The reason for that is, one, he is highly liked and respected by Democrats. He's the governor of the largest state with not just one of the largest economies in this country, but in the world. Right. Uh, he's young. He uh, is tough. Like when you see him, you know, talk 
you know, out against like DeSantis. But you saw him talk against Trump, but was able to work with Trump and was also able to uh, compliment uh, Donald Trump. Listen, I don't want to say I, I'm governor of California, but some people have said some of the things I just said about Gavin Newsom about me, which is I care about my party. I'm loyal to my party. I'm a Democrat, but I'm not afraid to sometimes, you know, pull some punches, but I'm also not afraid to work with some of those where punches have been pulled. Right. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm a realist. And, and when you hear Gavin New- Newsom talk about homelessness, for example, he's he's a realist. So I hate to use that cliche, he's a breath of fresh air. But um, I think that in politics nowadays is a breath of fresh air. Yes, he's a Democrat and he's yes, he's on the left, um, you know, but, you know, he'll he'll fight those battles um, and he's not afraid to back down. And there, especially in today's political climate, there's a lot of strength seen in that. So Gavin Newsom is is looked at has a lot of boxes in the strength (laughs) columns. Uh, that yeah. check off. Yeah, he has a lot of appeal. And, you know, he does have the youth. I was going to say also, like, there are other names we hear about, right? Like Gretchen Whitmer, Josh Shapiro, Jared Polis, all governors from swing or less blue states than California. But like, I, you know, I've covered him being a California based reporter for most of my reporting career. There is something about the way he speaks, right? Like he bought he bothers to make the case to you. Is, is is that right? Like he takes the time to explain that is, himself. You thank you for just giving the greatest answer for the interview that didn't come out of my mouth. <laughs> because no, but seriously, that that is what he does. You know, look uh, again. I'm not likening myself to him, and I'm not going to liken you know him to Bill Clinton. But Bill Clinton had that way about him. Bill Clinton has you know, like an Einstein IQ, is a Rhodes Scholar, went to Oxford. But when you spoke to him, if you were uneducated and, uh, you know, lived in a rural farm district, you didn't feel intimidated by him. You know what I mean? There, and Well, and but I think had, you could he, say, can you say that really about Gavin Newsom? Can you make that comparison? Well, no, my comparison is, and the reason I think that Bill Clinton had that is he had a way of explaining things to people in very common sense terms, which is what I think that you're saying, you know, about Gavin Newsom, which is just like, hey, look, you know, I'm not going to lie. You know, homelessness is a is a problem. Um, This is what I've done. I haven't made a dent in it. And this is why, you know, Um, and I I think it's refreshing, I think, for people to just hear hear some honesty, um, but just some real common sense explanations. And and I I think that Gavin Newsom, I know that Gavin Newsom does that quite well. I know you saw the interview he did with Sean Hannity. And I I, I think it prompts the question, and you've probably already answered this question. Like, why do an interview like that on a national stage with a more conservative audience if you are not trying to, to do something? And I'm not saying, like, necessarily run for president, but it certainly seemed like he was readying himself I, like you could understand why people were saying were wondering you know why do that you're are you it was he doling out one-on-ones with you know local reporters in la and san diego at the same time i think gavin newsom takes uh, the, the big interviews and i also think that you know as you know there are some democrats that um you know that are running for office that you know feel more comfortable at a cnn or an msnbc than they do a fox so um, I give credit to the governor, uh, you know, for doing that, because I, I think if somebody invites you, you go so that people know what you're mm-hmm. about to answer your question more specifically regarding 
you know, well, I mean, you're already governor of California, you know, why not? Well, first, California is the largest population in the state. They also have the largest Fox viewership, <laughs> you know, um, ah. and, and, uh, and and that's his state. Um, I, I, uh, and, and then um, on, on top of that, he's privy to that short list in those conversations. So if there were to be a situation where President Biden was not going to run for whatever reason, although he is and he will be the nominee um, unless you know there are acts of god we don't control right you know we have things sure. in our families right things in our families we don't expect that can change our lives uh illness and and of course uh death um and i don't just say that because the president is older i mean you know we you know we certainly read things about people who die young and people who die live to a very very you know right yeah. age sure but um so it, it but it's not just about the now I think it's about the future too, because Gavin Newsom, especially being a young guy, you know, everybody keeps talking about, you know, he's going to run and not Joe Biden. My take is it is that he's going to run after Joe Biden, hmm. like you know, Joe, but like he's setting himself up for. I mean, it could be argued five years isn't that far away, and the Fair. number one reason people vote for somebody is name recognition. So he's very well known in our circles, media, political circles, certainly in California. But outside of that, is he as right. well known? So so could he be, you know, laying the groundwork for people to get a sense of, hey, this is who he is, his name, what he looks like and what he had to say. And he's not afraid to take tough questions. And he I thought I thought it was I thought he did. A, I thought he did a great interview. I thought he did himself. I think there are people that are like, oh, Gavin Newsom, you know, after that interview. Um, so, uh, look, I don't think I think most politicians have a level of opportunist within them. And uh, that's an opportunity that he, that he took. And it doesn't necessarily mean for this uh, presidential okay. election. OK, fair enough. OK, so this recent Sackby article, I'm sure you've seen it. It says that really it's Republicans who are convinced that Newsom will run. Um, and I just want I just want briefly is that because Democrats are, are not convinced he will? So kind of to your point that, that most Democrats really are, they, they say Joe Biden is going to run again. He will be the nominee. That, that's not up for debate, except maybe if you ask Minnesota Congressman Dean Phillips. But like, it, it can, do Democrats not feel comfortable having the hypothetical conversation? They have the hypothetical conversation. But behind closed doors or at cocktail parties, just like Republicans have in the past about their candidates, um, just like sure. they're having right now about Donald Trump. I mean, look, if your party is in power, um, nobody runs for president to be a one term, four year president. Nobody. OK, the goal is what? You know, two terms. That, that's what yeah, one sure. hopes. That's what your that's what your party hopes. Uh, that's when you're when you're sitting there saying, I promise this and that. That's what you're hoping, because you usually can't get done everything you're going to say in four years. Arguably can't get it all done in eight either, especially uh, if you don't have complete control of the House and the Senate. And even then you don't have 100 percent of the people always sure. on board. Right. So, no, um, I think that if you just look historically, Democrats and Republicans rally around their guy. And when your guy which it's been sadly so far, I say, because we haven't had a gal. But when your guy is president, you don't talk about an alternative to that because they already have the job. And we all know when you're in the incumbent, whether it's president, Congress, Senate, governor, whatever, you have an advantage. You have the you know upper hand. It's harder to unseat an incumbent. 
That's why people make such a big deal out of a one-term president because sure. it's kind of like people expect it to be a, a you know a two-term. Yeah, it seems job. a bit like a failure. It's it, yeah, it, yeah, yeah, it's, exa- yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly, right. Yeah, exactly. Other than you were elected president of the United States of America. (laughs) It's like, hey, if I were elected president, I did it for a week. I'd consider it like take my lap, my victory lap. Um, Yeah. So I I don't I'm not surprised at that. It's sort of like uh, I think just an unspoken etiquette that both sides have for their candidate. It's it's respect for your president and for the you know, leader of your party at the time, if you will. So it's sort of like, you know, I, I mean, you know, you you don't you don't see Republicans, many, there are a few speaking, speaking out against Mitch McConnell or, you know, on the left as well. Whenever somebody is in a position of power, it can be president, it can be speaker, you know, whether majority or minority leader. Okay. Um, it, it's it's just, I think, an unspoken etiquette that you just, you know, you just don't talk about Okay, what do we, you know, let's get rid of him and put up the. Yeah, but you know, to your the point, guy. it's the. But to your point, it's the Plan B discussion. You just don't want to necessarily be too loud about it, I guess. <laughs> well, um, yeah, you don't. But it, but at the same time, I mean, politics is a numbers game, and you know anybody you know who who doesn't like to hear that is not being realistic. They're being very naive. Um, politics is a numbers game. And those numbers are from the Electoral College. And if you don't have that magic number, you don't win. And right now, all of the data everywhere shows Joe Biden with a very healthy lead over if it were Donald Trump as the GOP nominee. So if you have data that shows your horse is going to win, why would you talk about putting another horse in the race? I understand that. So but back to so back to Governor Newsom. Because yep. before I let you go, because th- there is there's a lot to talk about regarding him, right? He's got quite a past, and you know there's some musings right now about if he, you know, th- like this shift, for example, on energy policy. That's what the Washington Times is calling it. That he once opposed gas storage at the Aliso Canyon facility after that huge methane leak. It lasted for months, but now he's in favor of gas storage, and, and so the Washington Times is saying, you know, this might th- this kind of shift might be a readying for a, a bigger stage. Do, do you read it like that? Or is it more just, hey, we don't need any more blackouts. So we're going to we're going to put more, more gas in the canyon. I don't think as governor with the urgency of what's happened in our state and looking at what's happened in other states, whether it be in Texas with the grid and the failure there, or whether it be uh, natural disasters like the wildfires in Maui. Um, I don't think as governor, he is making decisions like that uh, based on his political future. I just, I don't see that in that person. Um, I don't think he has to do that to have the same goals. So I okay. think it's, uh, I think it's completely like, like, you know, like you said, like, you know, Hey, you know, we don't, we don't need these blackouts. Um, however, I don't think voters, at least it, Look, I mean, I'm sorry if you look at Donald Trump and you look at, well, he has said things or done things in the past. I'm, I'm sorry. How much time do we have? Um, and uh, I I don't know if voters have a short memory or we just choose to forgive or we choose to forget or all of the above. Uh, but we're in a very different time politically where, you know, we now have video. We, we you know, you could interview. I'm just going to say Senator X. Right. Um, you know, saying he is pro-choice and in favor you know, of a woman's right to choose. And then he is talking completely opposite and you have video and you put it side by side and you have him sitting across from you with a mic and cameras rolling and he'll deny one of the videos or he'll he'll do the political pivot, as I call it. Right. Which he'll talk about something else or something that makes him look better. And, you know, 
brings home the point. Look, you know, do people switch Mitt Romney? You know, when, yeah. when he was governor of Massachusetts, he was pro-choice. When he's running for president as a Republican, he's pro-life. Um, and, and that makes it, you know, hard to believe. But it doesn't make them, you know, win or lose based on that anymore. You know, anymore. It used to be, you know, that used to be in a gotcha moment, right? Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Right. That's it. You know, you're done. Not anymore. OK, Leslie, finally, how do you imagine a, a different candidate other than Joe Biden running would happen? Would, would it have to be? I imagine it would have to be with President Biden's blessing and, and maybe even more than that, Kamala Harris's blessing as well for, for somebody other than the two of them to to run, especially, I mean, given her favorability ratings as well. I, I imagine if it were anybody outside of those two, You'd have to almost get a personal phone call from them. You know, this is never that I can find been done. So it's it's definitely um, interesting. And it's something I've thought about exactly what you said, because if President Biden were to quit, Kamala Harris is president of the United States. If President Biden is too sick to lead but does not resign, Kamala Harris is interim president of the United States. If President Biden, God forbid, were to pass on, Kamala Harris is president of the United States. So there's kind of like a gray area because he is president of the United States. But if he decides not to run, if he says, I'm not going to run, I I, I agree with you. It would have to be a conversation that has the blessing of uh, Joe Biden and perhaps even more so Kamala Harris because, you know, or Gavin Newsom sits this one out. But mm-hmm. there's also conversations in both parties, who's going to win, right? Who's going to win? And there are times that we have to look, you know, ourselves. But, you know, politicians don't look at that. You have right now, you have people on the right that have one or two percent. They can't they can't even make the debates. Right. Mm-hmm. Yet they keep they keep running. Right. And they believe they can win. And we've seen people come from behind. We've seen some, sure. you know, crazy. President Biden that came from behind. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, um, you know, I mean, Kamala Harris, when I look at the numbers right now, you know, they're, they're not good. But I also know those can change. And certainly once you've been number two, you're not going to go as a woman and a woman of color. I'm going to step aside for another white guy to be number one. And so the, the, this it's a very, very complicated situation, which is why I certainly honestly, I hope it doesn't happen because it it will be a different, difficult situation. Um, and, and it could be that, you know, Kamala and Gavin and all the others sit down and say, you know what, let the people decide. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Election Day usually happens around the same time as the World Series ends. And in baseball, the tie goes to the runner. In the United States Senate, the tie goes to whatever party has the presidency. That was the case when President Biden took office with a Senate split 50-50. Vice President Kamala Harris broke the tie on a number of key bills on the president's agenda. Republicans were hoping to break that tie and strike out President Biden by winning back control of the Senate. But the GOP were the ones who struck out. 
As a matter of fact, Democrats ended up gaining a seat. Heading into Election Day 2022, Republican Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell pointed to what he thought was a major problem, candidate quality. Republicans will try again in 2024, and some believe the Senate map gives Republicans an even bigger chance to flip seats. There were several questionable weak candidates that cost them very winnable races in places like Arizona and Georgia and Pennsylvania. Jessica Taylor is the Senate and governor's editor with the Cook Political Report. And so they have tried to first recruit candidates, but now comes the sort of test of can they get these candidates through primaries? And that's sort of where we are at. I think that you look across the board and almost every race at this point has a recruit in it, but now we are at the time for them to prove their mettle and as voting gets underway in a few months in many instances, early next year, early spring next year and different things, that's where I think where the true test comes to lie because, and you've heard McConnell and others say this year too, listen, the map is a lot friendlier this cycle than it was last cycle um, when they're defending, you know, 20. Uh, Democrats are defending 23 seats to just 11 for Republicans, including three in states that President Trump carried twice. But they sort of can't rely on that. You can't just say, well, because of this, we are going to win these states when Democrats have very entrenched, popular in many cases, incumbents, even in very red states. And so I think recruitment has been the top priority of Republicans, but they have not avoided primaries in many of these instances. And so the question becomes, can their candidates get through? You know, we talk about winnable races, but ones with very tough incumbents. Montana comes to mind, and that's one that Fox News has on its radar as as one of the best chances Republicans have to flip a seat or defeat an incumbent. But you have Tim Sheehy here. You know, he's a, a founder of CEO of, of Bridger Aerospace, also a retired Navy SEAL, but he's also a political newcomer. And then you have him being pushed by a lot of the establishment Republicans. He's already gotten a couple notable endorsements, but he's got a tough primary with Matt Rosendale there, um, and he's already lost to John Tester before. You know, But at the same time, we're also looking at Rosendale winning in most of these polls here. So is this a possibility for Republicans to potentially get Sheehy through, or is Rosendale kind of entrenched here? So I think it's very early. Rosendale is not officially announced, but we expect that he is He's certainly making moves and acting like he is going to run statewide. He's holding um, events outside of his congressional district, for instance, and things. And so I think there's no better example here of, of where a primary could really cost them a winnable race. And because of this potential looming primary, it's a reason why we have actually, in our ratings, we have put Montana, despite it being, again, a very heavily Republican state, we've put it in lean Democrat for right now until we see how this primary shapes up. Sheehy is a candidate out of central casting, Purple Heart um, recipient, war hero, young, telegenic, has his own money, has a great story to tell, but he's got to spend a lot of that money, I think. I think it's just very early in the primary with early things that we have seen. I think Rosendale has an advantage because of name ID. He's run statewide before. He represents half of the state already um, and has represented all of the state before. And so I think it's very, it's still very early, but this is a key place where they very, probably more so than any other place, they feel like like she, he would give them a chance to unseat Tester in a way that Rosendale would not. 
And I think we should also probably point out that Montana Democrats know how to win statewide races, not just John Tester, but also Governor Steve Bullock. It's a state that, despite it being a red state, Democrats have had a, a lot of success. Um, but, you know, while you have Rosendale, who's kind of got the, the backing of a lot of Tea Party candidates and, and has that anti-establishment um mantra to him in west virginia it's kind of the exact opposite where you have congressman alex mooney getting some high profile endorsements but he's got a long road to catch up to jim justice who looks to be the favorite not just to win the primary but also to give probably joe manchin his toughest test yet i think west virginia if there is a race to flip it is this one and remember we still do not know if joe manchin is going to run for re-election whether he will run at all whether he would run as an independent whether he might run a third party candidacy for president or just not run at all. I mean, bottom line is if Manchin does not run for reelection, this seat is lost, regardless of whether it's Mooney or Justice is the nominee. Democrats do not have a bench. They would cede this, cede this seat. Um, and you're right. We see consistent polling that still has Justice, who is popular, has his own money, but also has a lot of scandals and biz- questions about his business and fines and coal mines and different things. And one factor I'm watching in this race is the club for growth because they have a history of spending to sort of boost these insurgent non-establishment type candidates. They are backing Mooney in this race. He needs their money, especially when you look at where justice is. Mooney has not typically been a strong fundraiser. And we see general election polling that shows that justice would win overwhelmingly, Whether, whereas Mooney and Manchin would be a much, much closer race. Um, notably, as I mentioned, the Club for Growth, they had backed Rosendale in Montana previously and seemed like they were going to do so. But we have seen comments from uh, their chairman and president in the past sort of recent weeks and months that indicate that they kind of see Sheehy as fine and they may not get involved in there, which is Rosendale also a weak fundraiser needs them to. So especially if the Club for Growth doubles down here in West Virginia, we could see a tightening primary. Um, But again, these are sort of the two biggest minefields I think I see on the Senate map of uh, potentially really messy primaries. Right. And I think, too, with Club for Growth, while they certainly do have a substantial influence and a a lot of money and have made impacts in these primaries, they have been beaten before. And I think, uh, you know, you look back at Ohio during the midterms, I think Mm -hmm. that's a good example where they backed Josh Mandel and he ultimately fell to J.D. Vance. A lot of that thanks to former President Trump's endorsement of Vance, but now we have a a tougher test for Republicans to try to flip the other Ohio Senate seat because you have Sherrod Brown, who obviously we know he's had a lot of success in elections, but you could also argue he's been very lucky with some candidates that he's faced in the past. Now, this time you have Secretary of State Frank LaRose, uh, Senator Matt Dolan, businessman Bernie Moreno, and I I would think that common political times would make you think Republicans want to go all in on LaRose, you know, considering his background being the Secretary of State, but Bernie Moreno is getting a lot of endorsements. Uh, Marco Rubio is one of them. And then also Dolan came pretty close to winning the primary. Kind of what do we make of the chances of someone beating Sherrod Brown, but also how this primary could shake up? This is the rare place where Republicans actually seem okay with a primary. Um, They say that they would be okay with any of these three candidates as the nominees. They don't really see potential problems ahead for any of them. And I agree early on, it did sort of seem like in talking to sources that LaRose seemed like he would be sort of the more traditional mold, having one statewide before. He has a military, he's a veteran as well. Um, And, but then you had, uh, 
issue one vote that happened there over changing the Constitution, um, over constitutional amendments. And he really went all in on that. The feeling is that he lost a lot of political capital when that happened. I've talked with some national Republicans that have kind of soured on him after that. We'll see what his fundraising is like. He's the only one, Moreno and Dolan both have personal money that they can put into this race. Um, and Dolan has his family money. His family is the co-owners of the Cleveland Guardians. And then you have Moreno that in addition to having his own money there too, he's also been a very good fundraiser, at least out of the gate. So LaRose needs to, we're, I'm, I'm really watching this contest for the end of the fundraising quarter, which ends at the end of this month, at end of September, to see whether LaRose has taken a hit on his fundraising, whether he's able to keep up after what happened with issue one. I think if any candidate has the inside track to get a Trump endorsement, it certainly seems like it is Moreno, who Trump has been very complimentary of his, uh, Moreno's daughter-in-law or daughter is married to Max Miller, um, another congressman who had worked on uh, Trump campaigns and different things, too. So there's a lot tried, of close tried to primary uh, try to primary one of the impeachment uh, candidates, too. Yes, that's correct. And we know for a fact that Trump will most likely 99 percent not be endorsing uh, Matt Dolan because he's been very no. critical of him in the past. Yes. Yeah, I don't. It seemed like it was between LaRose and Moreno there, perhaps LaRose trying to sort of get in there and things. But I think Trump doesn't like losers. So I think LaRose really hurt himself with everything that happened in that referendum in Ohio there. So Moreno certainly seems like he is the candidate to watch, perhaps at this point. But again, Republicans feel like they would be OK with any of these three candidates. So we will see uh, what the outcome of the primary is there. Uh, but I, while like the, the candidates there are, are, are set, you know, I think one state that's kind of a mystery on the Republican side is where you have Wisconsin. Um, mm -hmm. You know, some believe that this is a vulnerable seat for Tammy Baldwin. But, you know, it seems like a lot of the, the, the high profile candidates have opted not to run here. Thinking of Mike Gallagher is one that comes to mind. Yeah. You know, where could the party be heading here and who could kind of maybe make an impact and, and separate themselves? This is the big glaring hole that I see when I look at sort of the uh, seven competitive states that we have on our radar that Democrats are defending. And Wisconsin going to be a presidential battleground, perhaps the closest presidential battleground once again, um, one of the few places where Republicans had optimism in 2022 with Ron Johnson winning re-election there. Um, Baldwin is very popular, though, too. She has a lot of money. And you're right. I think Mike Gallagher, Republicans sort of went all in trying to get him. I was very skeptical that he was going to run and probably what would have still been a challenging race against an incumbent like Baldwin, given that he had just taken over um, chairmanship of the China Committee in the House. That seemed to be his passion and different things. And so he was sort of the A plus recruit that they struck out on. And so then you have other people like Tom Tiffany, a congressman there that has also passed. Um, right now, the so for focus seems to be on Eric Hovde. He's a, a very wealthy businessman, venture capitalist. He ran in 2012 for the Senate, um, lost in that primary to Tommy Thompson, who then went on to lose to Baldwin. Um, and he's flirted with running again for other races for governor and different things before. He has not fully committed. Republicans I've talked to feel like he will 
Um, the other the other candidate to watch is perhaps another uh, another businessman that can self fund, not to the extent that Hubdi can, um, called Scott Mayer. Um, but then you also have another candidate that is not who Republicans want, which is uh, former Sheriff David Clark there, who is making a lot of noise, another very Trumpy and controversial candidate and things. So this is a hole where they are still searching for a nominee, and someone like Clark could complicate that certainly. But and they he's feel got like- a national profile too he does he very much does uh and could possibly get trump support there was a little bit of a falling out between them i think but um you know certainly someone that would i think get some small dollar donors and some of those trump donors and different things hubdi has hits against him he's been a he has a home in california some questions in the local press there about how much time he spends in wisconsin versus california um so yeah this is the race where republicans are still are still searching for a candidate and for a strong candidate. And even Republicans I've talked to, especially after Gallagher passed, they even feel like any of them would sort of be the B or C team, really. So this is one where I, I think could drop down. It's not really at the top of Republicans don't have to win this race in order to win back the Senate, first of all, with just needing to flip one seat, really, if they win the presidency, too, if they don't. And so I think this is a race where if candidate quality becomes an issue that you could see a sort of fall further down the list. And when we talk about candidate quality, I think when we look back to Pennsylvania, uh, certainly in the gubernatorial race, you felt that Doug Mastriano was uh, somebody who was probably considered to be one of the weaker candidates Republican had in any statewide race across the country. And you have to think that there were some members of leadership who probably breathed a sigh of relief when Mastriano decided not to run for this seat. But now you've got Dave McCormick. Um, and I believe you had a, a, an interesting tidbit about him in a, in a recent article. He said uh, a glittering resume that might make McCormick attractive. West Point decorated service in the first Gulf War, senior roles in the George W. Bush administration. Uh, but then going on to say this may have been attractive in the Romney era GOP, but maybe not Donald Trump's Republican Party. But yeah. could he get enough support to, to pull out of this primary and ultimately have a chance at Bob Casey, considering, you know, Mitch McConnell's already backed him. But is this is that enough? If there is a place where Republicans could have a clear primary and where they have worked to clear it for um, for McCormick, it is here in Pennsylvania. As you mentioned, they got a big gift with Mastriano not running, which was a little bit of a surprise to me, given the fanfare that he'd had in the lead up to what ended up being a non-announcement. But McCormick has not gotten in yet. He's still, again, Republicans feel like he is going to. He is very close, but he has not yet. Casey also comes from a very popular family in the state. Um, his father was governor and still has a very high popularity rating. Even in polls we see between McCormick and Casey, Casey still has the edge. But they feel like this is a place where if they get McCormick in there, it becomes a I, I think this would rise certainly above Wisconsin, maybe even some other races as one of their top challengers, just because they feel like McCormick is such a strong candidate. But as you referenced what I wrote, in the Trump era, does he appeal to that side of the party and different things, too? Again, having that type of resume used to be a gold star, but now now it's sort of seen as more more of a hindrance sometimes, especially in Republican primaries. But if he has a clear primary, can he make can he go through there? If I'm looking at any of these races, this seems to be sort of the clearest path path in a primary that a candidate could have. But it's still early. We don't have the filing deadline that's passed in, in that by any means. Yeah, let's get let's let's touch on Democrats a little bit here because and we could touch on Republicans with this one, too, because we have Arizona, which might be one of the more unique Senate races we've seen in in a long time. Uh, You have an incumbent independent, potentially not in the race yet, 
but going up against a Republican and a Democrat candidate. Um, and then you have on the Republican side, them potentially running candidates in the front, which could be Blake Masters and Carrie Lake, who both lost statewide races in 2022. Uh, then you got Ruben Gallego, who's a, a pretty well-liked Democrat amongst the party. But how does this three-person race play out if, in fact, cinema decides to run for re-election? Because this is going to be something we really haven't seen too much of. Yeah, this is my asterisk race, and we have it rated toss-up because there are so many questions surrounding this. First of all, what does cinema do? And then if she runs again, DSCC and Chuck Schumer have a question of whether they're going to back her as well. Um, you know, she is part of their fragile majority, still loosely caucusing with them and they need her. Um, Gallego is more progressive. He's certainly not in the same mold as her or as Mark Kelly, who won two successive elections and stuff, too. So is that a little bit more of a risk? But then, you know, we started talking about the type of candidates that spurred Republicans to uh, re-examine uh, their recruitment strategies. And Blake Masters was the candidate atop that list. He's making very clear moves now to get into this race once again. You mentioned Carrie Lake, who has not still not conceded that she lost the governor's race, um, has been very much still a national figure going out there supporting Trump, believed to perhaps be on his vice presidential shortlist as well. Um Either of these Republicans are not the type of candidate that Republicans want in the least and would, I think, uh, sort of shy them off of focusing on this race, were it not that it were a three-person race and that strange things can happen when you have to just get a plurality of the vote. So there's just this is the race with more unanswered questions than we know. But, I mean, Republicans, they would very much rather have a more moderate type candidate. I think national Republicans would that could get some of those, um, you know, maybe disaffected Democrats or something if they see Gallego is too far to the left. And then the question is, can Senate appeal off enough of those disaffected Republicans, um, those sort of McCain Republicans that you also had a lake in her gubernatorial race uh, insult and say she didn't want the votes of and she may have won if not for that, um, because the race was that close. Um, so you have just such different factions breaking down in Arizona that makes this fascinating. But you know, the caliber of candidates is definitely not what Republicans want, but they sort of seem resigned that that is the direction that the state party has taken. And that if someone like Lake especially runs, she's more more likely than not to win the nomination. And it's interesting you bring up the state party, because if we're looking at a Republican party that has really been dominated by Donald Trump's influence, I think Arizona might be the one that really stands out. Uh, and, and to the point where, you know, you have Doug Ducey, the two term governor of Arizona, deciding not to even run for the seat when he probably would have stood a good chance of winning. He was reproached last time. He was approached this time. Um, I think he could have won a general election. But the question goes back to could he win a primary? That's the big question. That Those are concerns that you have. You don't want to be embarrassed in that regard. And so that's why you end up with candidates like Blake Masters and like Carrie Lake that can win primaries, but very, very volatile and risky candidates in a general election. And if we could touch on Michigan real quick, this is one of the mm -hmm. seats where you have a retiring senator in this race. What could Republicans be looking at here? And, and it looks like uh, Alyssa Slotkin is the front runner for Democrats right now, right? She is. She's jumped off to an early lead. She does have a primary challenge from actor Hill Harper, but right now she has a vast majority of the establishment behind her. 
And this is the race that Republicans actually got news in, uh, good news in this week. They were still searching for a candidate here, but they Republicans have gotten who is now their top candidate in the race, former Congressman Mike Rogers. He had a very long and respected tenure in the House, was chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, um, left politics sort of at the dawn of the Trump era. And there's some questions about how he would navigate a primary, certainly in this regard, where you also do have another Trump-like candidate, uh, James Craig, a former Detroit police chief that is really heavily teasing a run. You also have another former congressman, Peter Meyer, one of those congressmen who voted um, to impeach Trump in the second impeachment and then subsequently lost his primary due to that. He's formed an exploratory committee, but national Republicans are very high on Rogers. You know, he, he moved to Florida to work on cybersecurity issues, so he has moved back to the state. That's something they could hit him for. And again, he is another candidate that has this stellar resume in a pre-Trump era, but how does that play in a place where the party is dominated by Trump? And you mentioned state Republican parties that are struggling. Michigan is as well right now. They're practically broke. They are dominated by uh, Trump Republicans and those who question who were election deniers and different things. So those are all hurdles that they are going to have to overcome. Now an open seat gives them a better chance perhaps, Um, but the question is, Republicans feel very good about Rogers getting in, but there's still some primary landmines there that I think lie ahead for him as someone that is not accustomed to running in the Trump era. All right. Statewide Republicans in Michigan have taken a lot of losses since Trump won the state in 2016. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll have to see if, if they're able to pull this off this time. But uh, let's go into some of the seats that uh, Republicans are currently holding that Democrats might view as a possibility to flip them. I believe we have Texas here where you have Ted Cruz. Beto O'Rourke gave him a very good run in 2018. We always hear about how Democrats feel that this is finally going to be the statewide race. They win in Texas and they've come up short time after time. Uh, but the question is, can it happen this time? And also, I think in Florida, you have uh, there's the domination of the Republican Party in Florida. It's very different from Michigan and Arizona, where they had a ton of success in the midterms last year. And now you have Rick Scott up for reelection and Democrats are kind of flirting with Dwayne Wade and Grant Hill as potential candidates. And there's a, a number of other ones who have either declared or are considering running. You know, what's it going to take for Democrats to win in Florida, but also Texas? I think both of these still remain states that are just off the radar right now. This is going to be an incumbent protection year for Democrats. They have to prioritize that. Now, if they are able to put Republicans on the defensive, that could divert some money and things, too. So in Texas, you're right. You do have a state where Cruz is more unpopular um, than your normal incumbent and where O'Rourke was able to come close. Now they did sort of get a a strong candidate announced there. Um, Congressman Colin Allred, former NFL player, um, also had worked in the Obama administration. And but you also have another another state senator there, Roland Gutierrez, who represented Uvalde. So we're still watching that one. And then in Florida, I think the the Dwayne Wades and different things that was sort of a, a, a wishful thinking or rumors or different things. The main candidate that you have that uh, Democrats just got in there that the National Party um, is excited about is uh, Deb Mukersel Powell, who represented the Miami area for one term like, in a swing seat and then lost it 
um, in 2020. And so she is in that race. That seems to be who Democrats are coalescing behind. But um, the state party there still has a long way to go. This is a state, one of only two states where Trump improved his margin from 2016 to 2020. And so this is, I think, Florida increasingly becoming, it's not this, it's not the Florida, Florida, Florida swing state of 2000 anymore. Um, it is one that's trending in Republicans' direction. So I think these at this point remain just off the radar. We rate both of those as likely Republican, indicating we don't consider them competitive just yet, but they are ones that we are watching. And Democrats have gotten candidates now in these races. And so they, again, hope to sort of divert Republicans' attention from going solely on offense. All right. And let's just wrap this up with Nevada, a state where Republicans had success, but also not success uh, last year during the midterms. You had, I believe, the only gubernatorial flip of the entire midterm cycle with Joe Lombardo. Yes. Yes, Yes. Yeah. Yes, correct. And uh, and then obviously Adam Laxall coming up short in the Senate race. They're going to try this again. What are their chances here? Uh, this is one that I think is further down the list, but one certainly, you know, Nevada is a, a, is a swing seat in the presidential race, but one that has gone Democratic and different things. So you have Jackie Rosen, a first term senator there. Um And Nevada is a very interesting state because it is a very transient state. About half of the electorate turns over or is new. We also have a rise in just unaffiliated voters. Um, Republicans have national Republicans have gotten behind Sam Brown, another former uh, another um, veteran, uh, very badly wounded in Afghanistan, um, very badly burned, also received the Purple Heart there as well. But you have a couple of other candidates that are running, including a former Trump ambassador, um, another former attorney general nominee who uh, questioned who is an election denier as well. So not a clear primary there as well in that case. Now, uh, Brown had run in the primary against Laxalt and and lost, but impressed some people. And so he's sort of gotten the national blessing this time. But again, a primary still looms there in that case as well. Jessica Taylor with the Cook Political Report. I know we covered a, a lot of ground right there, but we really appreciate you breaking it down for us. Anytime. Thank you for having me. That'll do it for this edition of the Fox News Rundown from Washington podcast. Coming up this week, Congress is now fully back in session and the clock is ticking to avoid a government shutdown. And will Republicans move closer to an impeachment inquiry for President Biden? We'll keep an eye on all of that for you. I'm Ryan Schmelz. Thank you for listening to the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.